0: Welcome to America the Bizarre. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch.
1: And I'm Jeremy.
0: This is a weekly history podcast that deep dives into all the bizarre stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yep. So, still in quarantine. Hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. We're we're doing so. Um, We're starting our own little garden. So that's been an adventure since I do not have a green thumb. (laughs)
1: You might um, have what? What's the opposite of a green thumb? Brown, black, thumb, black, black thumb. Yeah. Probably that.
0: <laughs> I think one of the things with Jeremy is like he likes to get me like live flowers for events, which is very sweet. But I'm also like, why? You know that these are gonna die, and I kind because of think you get them just so you can rub it in my face that I killed something that you got me.
1: <laughs> no, because I literally know how much you like having plants and flowers on the house. And I ask them, hey, what, what's easy to take care of? <laughs> Actually, no, let me rephrase that. What plants require almost no maintenance? And they're like, oh, these are the perfect ones. Well,
0: they always lie to you because they <laughs> obviously require some kind of maintenance. <laughs> well, yeah. Because I, yeah, I kill everything.
1: Managed to keep a two-year-old alive.
0: I yeah, it's plants. I can mm-hmm. do animals because our dog just turned eight, yeah. and I'd like to think that I'm the primary caregiver of the dog as well. Mm-hmm. So I I can do animals. Yeah, but and like people, but not plants. <laughs> so this week, as uh, this week's quiz, presidential quiz is actually a user submission. So we appreciate that and. If anybody else out there has any presidential trivia that you would like to include it in a future episode, make sure you go to americathebizarre.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and fill out the contact form. And your quiz question may be in a future episode. So the question is, which president was the first president to be born in a hospital?
1: Ooh.
0: Yeah. That's a
1: good question. Yeah. Hmm. Like, I wonder how far back you have to go. Like, is it that far back? Is it
0: actually kind of recent? Yeah. 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 So the answer will be at the end of this episode. So stay tuned. All right. So are you? Ready to get into this week's episode?
1: Absolutely.
0: Are you cheating and Googling the presidential quiz answer? Nope. (laughs) Okay.
1: I'm Googling presidents.
0: Oh. (laughs) Is it still? Our poster uh, should be here sometime soon. I did order us a poster. Nice. So uh, we'll be able to put that on the wall so you can have a look and Mm -hmm. guess. Okay. So Clarence Petticord, isn't that quite the name?
1: Clarence Petticord.
0: Clarence Petticord was born on September 18th, 1917 in Fort Bayard, New Mexico. When he was two years old, his family moved from New Mexico to Vancouver, Washington. Clarence attended Vancouver High School, but dropped out during his sophomore year. When he was 19, Clarence was working on a broken refrigerator unit. A coil in the refrigerator burst open and covered Clarence in sulfur dioxide. Oh, jeez. Yeah, not good. Yeah. A doctor was called, but the doctor said that all Clarence needed was to get outside to get some sunshine and fresh air. (laughs) What? So Clarence was in a ton of pain and was like, I don't think that's working. Yeah. So he called an ambulance for himself. As he was riding in the ambulance to the hospital, his vision began to dissolve and he was completely blind by the time that he got to the hospital. The sulfur dioxide just ate his Uh corneas. So despite receiving the diagnosis that he would probably be blind for the rest of his life, Clarence refused to let it hold him back. He was only 19 years old and he was determined to still live a full life.
1: Right in the middle of the depression.
0: Yeah, so well, yep. Yep. Wow. So... Not a great time. Yeah. To be blind. Yeah. Not that any time is really a great time, but this is like one of the...
1: The periods in history where it's just like, (laughs) probably don't want to be the blind guy. Like, you want to be able to contribute to your family.
0: Right. So, and he's a young guy. Yeah. Yeah. Single. Right. Clarence was given a seeing-eye dog named Duke. With Duke leading the way, Clarence and Duke climbed to the top of Beacon Rock in the Columbia River Gorge in Washington in 1938. We oh. actually completed the climb twice nice. together. Yeah. A newspaper article written about Clarence and Duke's adventure had the headline Dog Leads Master Up Beacon Rock, <laughs> which I feel like you could have put Blind Master up there and it would yeah. have been a way better headline. Yeah. The article included the line Petticord said the dog guided him so expertly he did not even rub against the safety cables placed along dangerous portions of the trail. Clarence started looking for a job, and he had heard that an executioner in Sing Sing Prison in New York had gotten sick, and the prison was looking for his replacement. Clarence applied for the job, and newspapers across America wrote about a blind guy possibly becoming an executioner (laughs) in a huge prison. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: However... I just...
1: (laughs) That instantly just throws up red flags, (laughs) because it's like, how does he know that it's the right person? Well,
0: there's a lot of things that I mean um, Yeah,
1: I know. Like, yeah, there's probably he's not the guard that's leading the
0: Well and also this is in the damn the the late thirties. Um so I don't know, you know, they're probably still executing people like by, you know, electric chair, uh hanging people. Mm -hmm. Um usually want somebody with eyesight to make sure that it's going well.
1: Right, <laughs> right.
0: It's just one of those jobs that I think you should have eyesight for.
1: Good thing they didn't do it intravenously at this point in time. Yeah, because well, yeah, that would have been a pain.
0: Really, either any way oh, that you, sorry, gotta try any again. Any way you kill somebody, I think you should probably be able to see to do it. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, the prison capital fell- punishment. That's a whole nother topic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyways, the prison felt the same way that we do, and he was turned down for the job. Claire, Clarence. Oh, I thought you were
1: going to say they said yes. No. absolutely, it's a <laughs> <No>. great idea. <laughs> That's why I was like,
0: <laughs> no. So Clarence told a journalist, "I hate to think what I would do if I got the job, but I've tried everything else in my search for work." So even he was like, "Yeah, it's probably good that I didn't yeah. get the job."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just you know throwing my hat in the
0: ring. Yeah, a charity organization who heard about Clarence helped him set up a candy machine vending business that serviced Vancouver. Soon after that, Clarence married his high school sweetheart, Lucy Dilbaugh. They had a baby, but they got divorced around their one-year anniversary. Jeez. A couple years later, in 1941, Clarence was single, and his candy vending machine business was taken off. Booming. He was actually doing pretty well in yeah. the candy machine vending business. Nice.
1: I can imagine. Like That was probably a pretty new invention at the time.
0: Yeah. So, he realized that he would need to hire a full-time driver, so he posted the position, and a young woman named Dorothy Mae McCourtney applied, and Clarence was smitten with her. He hired her, and they soon began dating, and then they got married. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December seventh, 1941, the United States officially entered World War II. When this happened, the federal government set up a rationing system in the country which limited the amount of certain goods a person could purchase that included gas, butter, canned milk, and sugar. Many saw rationing as doing their patriotic duty to help with the war effort. Hmm. But with sugar being rationed, Clarence's candy business went under quickly. Yeah. So, there goes that for Clarence. <laughs> and one good thing going for him.
1: Womp <laughs> womp.
0: So Clarence decided that he would move his family to Portland and open a lunch stand near a shipyard. There, his lunch stand made enough money that Clarence and Dorothy could live a decent life. One day, one of Clarence's employees poisoned Duke, and Duke died. Uh, yeah. Uh, what? yeah. What? Yeah. Why he so just was, hated his boss? I they don't like a bunch of articles. Like they don't really know why the guy poisoned Duke.
1: I'm just a dick. Yeah,
0: and also, if like you, you know, you hate your boss don't touch the dog. Yeah. It's not the dog's fault. Yeah. Leave the dog alone. Yeah. So Clarence was obviously devastated. Mm Mm-hmm. And he just closed the lunch stand. He was like, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not Uh. coming back here. So Dorothy later said that Clarence got in his mind that if he could see again, he could get a job in a war plant and make some money. So that's his next plan, to make some money. So Clarence thought if he could just raise enough money, he could pay for st- surgery that would restore his eyesight, and then he could get a job in a war plant. Hmm. So Clarence and Dorothy went to California, where they rented out the same house several times to different people, and then ran off back to Vancouver with all of the security deposits. So now they're into fraud. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, now they're criminals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, that was a turn. Yeah. Authorities caught up with them and then took them back to California, but let them go after they both pled guilty. Clarence then tried going into selling popcorn, but that didn't last very long, either. So also, it
1: doesn't require much sugar, but... Uh, no. Yeah. Anyways.
0: So then, and I also feel like, well, people are like, well, we could just pop our own popcorn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, unless you're selling it at events, like event-based yeah. popcorn, like...
0: Yeah, and this is during World War II, and yeah, so yeah. that wasn't really happening, so... Yeah. Uh, so then he goes and tries selling a battery-restorative fluid, and then battery companies ended up forcing Clarence to close down, so... Jeez. <laughs> just, just
1: having a rough just go. Just
0: really bad luck. Clarence but w- I feel like,
1: as an entrepreneur, he is getting the full experience he of sure failing is. businesses.
0: Yeah, he sure is. So now... He's like, well, business isn't going great for me. I'm going to try something else. Well, at least he keeps trying, right? He Is he a farmer have to next? Lay down. No. Oh. He decides that he would hitchhike from Portland to New York City and use his story to raise money for his eye surgery. So hmm. he's still thinking doing the war plant idea. Oh, yeah. So, But he still just needs money for his eye surgery. So he takes off from Portland. His plan worked. And newspapers all over the country wrote about the blind guy walking across America. Nice. So when Clarence got to Detroit, he was asked by a Chicago radio program called We the People to be on their show.
1: Like, that is such a patriotic story. You think about it, this blind man on a mission to restore his eyesight from Portland to New York. So
0: that he can work in a like, plant for, like, a war plant, so that he can help the yeah, the cause. Right,
1: right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. oh, that is just a great news story.
0: Yeah. So I think other people thought so, too. And that's mm-hmm. why he was in newspapers, and now he's on this radio program program Mm -hmm. so he agrees and then a businessman from saratoga springs heard about clarence's story and he offered to pay for both clarence's train ticket to new york city and for his cornea operation dang so he's getting his operation he's gonna get his eyesight back clarence went to dr raymond castroviejo who was a leader in the area of corneal transplants dr castroviejo performed cornea transplants on one on just one of clarence's eyes I don't know why Why, if I think Clarence only had money, still only had money for the one eye.
1: The guy, the the, the guy who bought the train (laughs) ticket was just like, "Oh, it's both eyes." I thought it was just one. Well, you
0: really only need one, right?
1: Having a half-off deal.
0: Yeah, so they do the they do the cornea transplant. They take off the bandages, and Clarence can see. What? Yeah. So excited. Clarence said, It was wonderful for a minute. The doctor took the bandages off. I opened my eyes. The miracle I had been waiting 12 long years for had happened. I could see. Sunlight was streaming across the ceiling, but before I could adjust myself, I suddenly saw the points of scissors coming right at my eye. The doctor was only going to cut the stitches, but I didn't know that, and I jerked my head back. That jarred my eye. It began bleeding inside, and I was blind again. No. Yeah. So he just ruined his... Uh, He finally got his, a new eye, and he just, like, ruined
1: it. You can't see me, but I'm cringing, like, (laughs) so bad right now. Like, I get it. Like, you're like, oh no, what are you doing? Yeah, get out. But, like, why wouldn't the doctor, like...
0: Be like, "Hey, hey, I'm just gonna take out your stitches. And maybe he
1: did. He was just so in awe.
0: Yeah, just looking at everything. Yeah. So, Clarence's new eye had been severely damaged. Dr. Castroviejo said he'd be willing to try another transplant in six months, but Clarence didn't have the money to pay for another surgery. So, Clarence returned to Portland, a defeated and still blind man.
1: Oh, man.
0: Clarence needed to support his family. By this time, Clarence and Dorothy had five kids. Jeez. So, yeah. at least his eyesight's not holding him back. <laughs> 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 So He's got one good eye. <laughs> so he started Metro Chemical Laboratories. The company sold a product that was supposed to extend the life of batteries. So kind of like one of... The
1: restorative battery business that he had.
0: So this is when Cla- Clarence actually taught himself how to use a typewriter so he could perform business. Oh, so nice. he could at least have to type, and he was actually pretty good at it.
1: I will tell you that the single most amazing thing that helps me type is the two little... Indents on the what is it the G and J key,
0: the F and J,
1: yeah, the F and J,
0: so you can like set up your hands.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know that when I was in high school, I like went to a competition for like typing? Oh, really? I made it to state, so nice. that's
1: that's pretty cool. That's
0: a pretty cool thing that yeah. our kids will think I'm really cool for doing in yeah. high school,
1: <laughs> yeah, that
0: is pretty neat. I could do like. I want to say it was like 95, maybe it was over 100 words per minute with like, 90, with like 90% accuracy.
1: That's it? So
0: fast. 90%? <laughs> it was probably, I don't know, higher than that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It, I just know it was you fast. You didn't keep the you didn't I just keep know it impressed people, okay? Yeah. But just stay in typing fast, okay? <laughs> Teaches himself how to type, and he has his like own typewriter. and Humble brag. Yeah. So no, Yeah, no, me. He, me. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So, uh... <laughs> Anyways, however, Metro Chemical Laboratories ended up receiving between 80 and 100 complaints with the Portland Better Business Bureau, so that ended up shutting the laboratory down.
1: What were the complaints? I think
0: fraud. It was more fraud. Just
1: selling them, like, Gatorade water, sugar water? Yeah,
0: something like that. So, another business has failed. Clarence goes into selling pencils, Ah. which works just about as well as selling popcorn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we had... We had the sugar vending machine, the candy vending machines. Yes. Then we had the battery.
0: Batteries, yeah. Then we had
1: the popcorn.
0: Well, there's the lunch stand, but then his dog got poisoned.
1: Yeah, I think it was then the lunch stand. Yeah. Then the trip across America. Yep. Bad eyesight. Tried the battery thing again. Now yep. we're on to pencils. Pencils. So this is like
0: and he is receiving disability. Eight, adventure number eight. But he's not making enough money selling pencils and getting disability to give his wife and his five children the life that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Or really, you know, a decent life. Mm-hmm. On April 15th, 1955, Aaron Frank, the owner and president of Frank and Meyer, the largest department store in Portland, Oregon.
1: Oh yeah, that is really key to... Because there is a Portland, Portland, Maine. Maine,
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he went to his office and he starts going through his mail. He then opens up an envelope that had the word IMPORTANT in capital letters written on it. There was a two-page letter in the envelope that read, About the time you receive this, a bomb will explode in your store. This is only a warning. A second and more powerful charge of explosives had been hidden and set by an accurate timing device to explode sometime in the 12 hours ending at noon, April 16th. As soon as he gets done reading that, that's when a huge explosion goes off in the men's bathroom on the third floor. Oh, Jesus. Bricks and glass went flying out into the street. Luckily, there were only two injuries from the explosion the janitor who had been opening the bathroom door when the bomb went off, and a woman who had been walking up the steps to the nearby post office. Mm. The Portland Police Chief Jim Purcell and Captain of Detectives Bill Brown immediately began their investigation of the bombing and started by reading the letter that had been delivered to Aaron Frank.
1: Clarence, you son of a gun. <laughs>
0: Besides warning of the explosion, the letter also listed the bomber's demands, $50,000 in $5 bills, $10 bills, and $20 bills that would need to be delivered by a store representative carrying it in a light-colored suitcase. The representative would take the suitcase to the Imperial Hotel between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. and stand in front of the hotel for 5 to 10 minutes, and would need to wear a white carnation in the lapel of his suit so that the bomber could identify him. The representative would then need to go to a telephone booth that was located two blocks north of the hotel, where he would get a call with further instructions. The representative could not be a police officer. If all of these stipulations were met, then the bomber would give Aaron Frank instructions on where the next bomb was hidden and how to dismantle it. The department store was 12 stories high and a whole city block wide. Like, that's how big this store was. Yeah, massive. So looking, but
1: this is post World War II. They probably have some sort of like bomb detecting dogs, right?
0: Um, maybe, but they figure they're like, well, if another bomb's going to go off within twenty four hours, and this store is huge, yeah, they're like, you know,
1: to look- get a looking, dog f- in
0: looking for another bomb, even with a dog or something, could take a long time. So, and also the store made way more than fifty thousand dollars even in a day, so Aaron Frank quickly agreed to just pay off the bomber, and a light colored suitcase was filled with cash within a couple of hours. A rookie policeman named Paul Lyons was selected be the to be the representative that would carry the cash, even though he wasn't supposed to ple- be a police officer. He obviously put a police officer in. They figured if he was a rookie, then they were like, "How would you know Yeah,
1: how would they know?
0: yeah. So while they were getting the suitcase ready to go, the police department's bomb squad started investigating the bathroom for any clues as to who the bomber could be. They couldn't find any clock pieces or bomb parts, so they concluded that the explosion has had been caused by just a few sticks of dynamite taped together and lit by a slow-burning fuse. So there was a chance that the second bomb was a lie. But they weren't going to take any chances. Yeah. Yeah. Lyons put on a business suit and placed a white carnation in the label and left with the suitcase for the Imperial Hotel. After waiting outside of the hotel for five minutes, he walked to the telephone booth, and at 7.08 p.m., the phone started to ring. When Lyons answered the phone, he heard a man with a nervous, medium-high, and rather soft voice that told him to go back to the Imperial Hotel and look under the seat of the third phone booth in the hotel's lobby. Hmm. Lyons then wrote down where he was going on a piece of paper, crumpled it up, and dropped it on the ground so that other police officers knew where he was going. Lyons made it back to the Imperial Hotel, looked under the third phone booth seat, and found an an envelope that had a key and a note inside. The note read, Go to the Union Station. There, go to Baggage Locker 1037. In the locker, find a brown manila envelope. Inside is another envelope with a note for further instructions. Lyons wrote another note for detectives, crumpled it up, and left it outside of the phone booth before making his way towards Union Station. When he got to Locker 1037 and opened it, he found another note that told him to hire a taxi, but that the taxi could not have a two-way radio. He would then need to have the taxi take him across the Willamette River and then take Highway 99 East towards Eugene, Oregon. While on the road to Eugene, which is around 125 miles away from Portland, Jeez. the taxi could not drive over 25 miles per hour, like on the highway. Why? I don't know. That's what the note said.
1: Oh, God.
0: So a car would then pull up behind the taxi and flash its lights three times to signal to the taxi to pull off of the road. The right rear door would then open, and the suitcase would be set down without anybody exiting the taxi. The door would then close, and the taxi would need to drive for another five miles down the highway, where they would then turn around and go back to Portland. If there was no contact between Portland and Eugene, the taxi would need to turn around at Eugene City limits and go back to Portland, driving under 25 miles per hour again, and wait for the signal again. Once Lines finally got a taxi that did not have a two way radio, which apparently took a while.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: He paid the taxi driver up front for the long drive. <laughs> the taxi driver was like, I'm not doing this, this without this. This is up outrageous. Yeah. You want
1: me to go how slow? Yeah, exactly. For how long? Yeah. 250 mile trip?
0: Yeah. Unmarked police cars trailed the taxi at a distance. Driving at 25 miles per hour, it took them five hours to get to Eugene. And they made it all the way to the city limits without being flashed by another car. Oh, no. So they turned around and started driving slowly back towards Portland. They made it all the way back to Portland and weren't flashed on that drive either. So apparently the bomber had shaken out. Yeah. Or missed them. The detectives didn't know if they had scared off the bomber or what, so they decided to just go full manpower on trying to find a second bomb in the 11 acres of shopping space in the department store. Yikes. Yikes. The day after the first bomb came and went, there was never an explosion, and they never found a second bomb, so they figured that their first hunch was right, that, yeah, it was just a lie. So the detectives then tried to look for clues and started interrogating anybody they thought that was connected to the bombing. Aaron Frank offered $25,000 as a reward for any information that led to the arrest of the bomber, and five Portland banks added another $3,000 to the reward. They tried looking for fingerprints at the phone booths, but none were found. The only evidence they had was the residue from the explosion and the typewritten notes. Hmm. The detectives decided to look more into the notes. Since every single typewriter has its own identifiable marks, they were considered just as good as fingerprints for identifying people, and police departments actually kept typewriter records just like fingerprint records. They discovered that the notes had been typed up on a royal standard typewriter. There were three million of these typewriters in circulation, and thousands of them being used in Portland alone so the police department assigned different groups of officers to start checking out every single royal standard typewriter in the city. Jesus. The detectives then decided to check with the Portland Better Business Bureau to see if they could compare the extortion notes to any typewritten notes the Bureau had received from con artists in the Portland area. If any similarities were found, the matches would be sent to the FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C. Oh my gosh. (laughs) In October, typed letters by a Portland businessman named Clarence Petticord matched the irregularities in the typed-up extortion letter. Samples were then sent to the FBI for verification. But then detectives became disheartened when they found out that their ses- their one suspect was blind. They're like, well, <laughs> he couldn't have done it, he's yeah. blind! yeah. The FBI came back and said that the extortion letter type irregularities were a 100% match with Clarence's letters to the Portland BBB. So the Portland Police Department went to go arrest Clarence Petticord. Like, well, he's our only suspect. So Captain Brown said it was the most heartbreaking arrest of his career. He said when he went to go arrest the blind down on his luck Clarence, Clarence knew that he was caught and all he did was tell his family goodbye. Captain Brown just knew that the blind Clarence had to have had an accomplice, and when he asked, Clarence quickly replied that his accomplice was his sister-in-law, Joyce Keller. Joyce Keller was arrested the next day, but she denied she had anything to do with the bombing. But later that morning, a clerk from the department store positively identified her as part of a woman and man couple that had gone into the third floor stairwell with a shopping bag on the day of the bombing. Oh. During his confession, Clarence said, I did not mean to hurt anyone. I would not have planted a second bomb. When they asked why he wanted the taxi to go only 25 miles per hour on a busy highway, he said, Joyce isn't a very good driver. I was afraid she might get into an accident if she had to follow a car that was going any faster. Clarence and Joyce were charged with causing injury to persons and property by unlawfully, purposefully, and maliciously setting off a bomb.
1: Okay. First of all, he's blind. How does she know he knows she's a bad driver? I
0: mean, I guess you can feel <laughs> being jerked around in a car.
1: Yeah, or being in an accident. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his wife, his wife, just was like, "My sister is the worst driver." Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Dorothy was so upset with her husband bombing the Storks. Apparently, she didn't know anything about it uh, and getting arrested that she checked herself into a mental hospital, and their five kids were made wards of the state. Oh. At his plea hearing, Clarence pleaded guilty and asked to be sentenced immediately. The judge refused to accept Clarence's guilty plea and said he would only accept an innocent by insanity plea. I don't know if that's because they think Clarence is insane, or they just really feel bad for this guy. Yeah. So, despite that, Clarence eventually was able to submit a guilty plea, just later on. He hoped that by pleading guilty, he would receive a lighter sentence, but he was ultimately sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was given no leniency. On May 14th, 1956, Clarence was found unconscious in his cell while hanging from a rope that he had smuggled into his cell that day before he was supposed to testify against Joyce. Mm -hmm. He was able to be revived and was taken to the county hospital where he recovered. What? Yep. Wow. Like the one time that he has... I guess good luck? When Clarence made it to court to testify against Joyce, he said that he never had an accomplice and he had acted alone. And everybody's like, well, there's no way. Yeah, you dude. were gonna
1: follow a car.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but without Clarence's testimony, there was no hard evidence against Joyce that she had taken part in the bombing and she was released. Dorothy divorced Clarence and actually testified against him when a mail fraud charge was brought against him for his metrochemical laboratory business. Oh. Clarence was released on parole in April of 1966 after serving half of his 20 year sentence. He died on March 25th, 1978, from a heart attack in Los Angeles at 59 years old. Hmm. And that is the story of the blind bomber.
1: Nice. That is uh, just quite the roller coaster. You just got, you're rooting for this guy. He's, you know, young man, injured. and... Yeah. Then he wants to be a businessman, like be like, successful, like, live the American dream.
0: Like he's like going on mountain hikes with his sing eye dog, and then yeah, he's hitchhiking across America, and then he ends up being a bad person. Yeah, he's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. My sources for the story are "Famous Crimes the World Forgot, Volume One" by Jason Lucky Morrow, "The Meyer and Frank Bombing, 1955" by the Oregon Historical Society. Bizarre 1955 Bombing and Extortion Plot Amplify Meyer and Frank Building's Rich History by Douglas Perry. Cruel Fate Pushes Blind Bomber to Attack Oregon Department Store in 1955 by Mara Bobson.
1: What was the very first one, the volume
0: one of the Bizarre? Famous Crimes the World Forgot, volume Mm. one. Yeah,
1: that that sounds like a pretty good book.
0: It is a good book.
1: Is it? Yeah. A lot of crazy stories in there. Yes. Well, cool. Yeah, so strange. Just not where I expected that to go.
0: Yeah, just just kind of disappointed in Clarence. Yeah, Clarence Petticord. So yeah. you don't exactly also, expect somebody I, with that I name still, to be a bomber.
1: But I I'm, I'm still pretty mad at the doctor.
0: That he was coming at him with stitches
1: with his scissors with
0: his scissors yeah. to get the stitches. Yeah,
1: like okay, you, a you couldn't have done that earlier or or warned him or like held him down or yeah you know just my natural reaction when anybody comes at me with sharp and pointy is to like turn away
0: i just uh, i can't imagine how bad that especially must have somebody hurt. who hasn't seen
1: for 12 years yeah. my god
0: he got to see for like a total of like 30 seconds before no. it was taken away from him no. poor guy
1: but, and then also, can we talk about the businessman who only paid for one of his eyes? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, maybe if that had happened, like, he still would have had one good eye well, to look at us? see,
0: I don't know if it was that he only paid for one of them, or if the doctor was like, we happen to, you're, you, oh, hey, you're here. Yeah. Uh, we only have one eye that'll work for you. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why they only did one eye. Maybe he was like, oh, this other one's, like, so damaged that there's no way that, like, a transplant would even work. Yeah. I mean, we can blame the business guy. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe <laughs> I don't the know. bombing Just, is Just like, I'm fault. hung up there. That's where I'm hung up at.
1: Like, that was, like, the turning point, I feel yeah. like, in his life. Because then he went and tried to, you know, commit fraud. And...
0: I think it was the dog. I think yeah. it was the guy killing his dog. That'll make a person do crazy things. Yeah, that's how you. That's how you create a villain. Right, you kill their dog. Yeah. Uh, so the answer to the presidential quiz, yeah. which was the first president to be born in a hospital, yeah, it was Jimmy Carter. What? A pretty fairly recent president. Yeah, he was like thirty. Around forty some years ago is when he was our president. Yeah, and not the one that I would ex you I would almost expect Jimmy Carter to be born like on the farm, like <laughs> you know like in a one room house. So I don't know. That kinda of blew my mind.
1: Yeah. So he was the thirty ninth president.
0: Yeah. First one born in a hospital.
1: My goodness. <laughs> That's crazy. All <laughs> well, these presidents I being, don't know what that being... has
0: to say about uh, America just... or presidents, but... Well,
1: thanks. First of all, thanks, Deb, for that question. That's yeah. a great question. Um, I guess that it's just how America has transitioned away from, like, home births and...
0: Yeah, maybe that has more to say about America than presidents. I don't yeah. know.
1: yeah. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. like, and, in, in, like, the our take on medicine, like...
0: But it also surprised me, especially with, like, the rich presidents we had, especially, like, in the turn of the century, like, the Roosevelts, like, that they weren't born in a hospital.
1: But, see, here's the thing, though, is I think it's literally just modern medicine pushing people to give birth in hospital. I think you're right. Because, like, I don't know, for how many years did we give birth in the wild? I say the wild, but I mean like at home or, <laughs> you know, sure, like Native Americans out on the plains, yeah, and that sort of thing, yeah. And then just like we just have this like modern medical obsession with increasing a hundred percent, you know, birth successful birth rate. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, you also think about too about how many like women and babies died. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, <laughs> no,
1: I'm. Not, I mean, but I'm saying like that right. was the culture. Like yeah. the culture was like, hey, we can do it. You in just the wild. Have your baby we don't need at doctors. Yeah, yeah, we don't. Well, well also hospitals. Like, right.
0: yeah, I just thought it was crazy. only the
1: biggest biggest cities really had hospitals.
0: Yeah, I just thought it was crazy how recent of a president. That was yeah. That is. I thought like FDR would for sure have been born in a hospital, but I guess not. Yeah. I mean, I say Roosevelts. I mean, Teddy was born very rich, but I like, would be, like, you know, less surprised to find out that he was born, like, at the top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. Like, he and he immediately came out fighting a grizzly bear. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was right. just Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Uh, so if you liked this podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review us so that other people can find out, you know, I guess if you like us, how great we are, if you don't right. like us. I mean, maybe they should just give us a chance anyways, if we're (laughs) we're a bummer. If you would like to know more about podcast episodes or look at some sweet merch, please go to our website at americathebizarre.com. Yeah. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to Patreon.com and search for America the Bizarre. It helps us put out more episodes and release bonus content and make some more sweet merch, all of the cool bonus stuff that we like to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my spiel. So do uh, you have anything else to add?
1: No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Nope, that's it. Stay safe, stay healthy.
0: And until next time, stay stay weird, weird, America. America!